it's not that systematic theology is unbiblical. It's just that you've taken all the biblical data as much as you can find and you systematize it together. Whereas biblical theology is more, or it's less integrated. Does that make sense? So it's a little bit more eclectic or it's a little bit harder to, you know, to categorize. And often one approach for biblical theology is to study um, a theme for a particular Bible author. Like I'm going to study um, the deity of Christ and the gospel of John and all the writings of John. That's one approach they take often in biblical theology. Yeah. Yep. Where systematic theology is more concerned about, you know, how does the whole of Scripture categorize things? Yes, yeah, so that's actually what we're going to do. <laughs> no, but I mean, David's shaking his head. Probably not so much that we should do that, but but that you would find similar categories, wouldn't you? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I when even looking at this. Um, you find a Catholic scholar with a, a you know a textbook on Christology, and his outline's really similar. Yeah. Yeah, and their conclusions. Yeah, their conclusions will be obviously way different. Yeah, I mean that's a good way to explain explain it too. Yeah. Okay, so that's where we were last week. This week. Um, you can see in our outline, this is, this is the class, or at least the, the Christology section. You have the person of Christ, section one, the work of Christ, section two. So we'll spend a while here on the first section, um, the person of Christ, and at least what I put under these, people do a little bit differently depending on who you're talking to, but I put underneath the person, his deity, his humanity, and then his union, the union of the two natures, okay? Um, so today we're talking about just the deity, and we won't even... We'll barely start the deity today, okay? That's where we are today. And for the deity of Christ, we're going to talk about these seven points, okay? The definition, why it's important, and what we'll spend most of the time on is the biblical teaching. And this is where we'll get to, where we'll get to today. We'll start three, okay, on your outline. And then as we move along over the next, actually after we take the break and come back from the break, start the you know, implications for the Trinity, um, and then historical attacks on the, on the deity or on the person of Christ and different affirmations of who he is. And then some you know, things about apologetics and how you talk to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and that kind of thing. People who deny the deity of Christ, for example. And then some application. So this is the big picture. It'll take a while to get through this outline. But so today we're going to start these three. All right. And again, number three down there, biblical teaching. We're just going to do the very first part of that, okay? That'll, be, that'll absorb most of our study because, again, we want to see what the Bible says about the issue and not as much time on the other issues, even though they are important. But we want to see what the Bible says. So we're starting with the definition. Before I go there, um, how would you define the deity of Christ? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he always has been God, and you could add to that, he always will be God. Yeah, he's fully God. So uh, for our definition, um, you can find different definitions. I liked, uh, actually, uh, where Scott and Lee are moving, the seminary associated with their new church, this is one of the teachers who just retired from there, Roland McCune. Um, Detroit, yeah. That's where he was teaching. He was actually the president there for a while, yeah. 
Yep. This is how he defined it. Um, deity. Okay. The American church, they have a diet Jesus, don't they? Or Jesus light. But is there a diet and deity? We're just talking about spelling right now. <laughs> That's a way to remember to spell it. There's no diet and deity. Okay. So D-E-I-T-Y. Deity means being of the essence or substance of God. Okay. There's your short. Well, uh, actually, Lucas gave us the really short definition, which was good. Now we're starting to expand it. So deity means being the essence or substance of God. The deity of Christ means, therefore, that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, so a person in human flesh from a real place, was and is God. Further, Scripture specifically denotes that God took on humanity and not vice versa. What does that statement mean? What do you mean by not, vice versa? Right, and now you didn't get deified while he was on earth, or, you know, this man. There you go, yeah. Good, good explanation. Thus, Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. That's the deity of Christ. I think that's a good summary of, of his deity. And I know there that it's not to be confused with the word deism. What does deism mean? Someone says deism. What are they talking about? They're trying to explain the meaning. It's a belief that basically there is a God creator that created everything, but then doesn't have any really interest in interacting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's almost like people that would believe that, yeah, something must have created all of this because of how complex it is, but he doesn't care about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how I've always heard it explained, too, basically. Or kind of like winding it up and letting it go. Yeah. So it's not that, okay? So if you're deism and deity, especially the deity of Christ, we're talking about two different things, okay? So just don't uh, to be confused there. Uh, that's definition. Any questions on that? We're just trying to describe what, what in the world is the, the deity of Christ. Someone asks you on the street or wherever, talking to someone on a plane, you say something about the deity of Christ. You say, what's that? That's what we just talked about. He's fully God. That's the shortest answer. Jesus is fully God. He always has been and always will be. So, importance, the importance of the deity of Christ. And we'll either spend about 20 seconds here or the whole hour. I'm not sure. Um, did Jesus have to be God to die for our sins? Okay. I have three yeses. Any more yeses? Did Jesus have to be God to die for our sins? <laughs> we're might, we might get a little philosophical, but yeah, go ahead, David. Okay. He has to be a perfect sacrifice, which means he could not have a sinful human nature in that sense. So in that sense, I would say, yes, he had to be God. Yeah. But I mean, in theory, if there could have been a perfect man, so to speak, then maybe not. Yeah. It's, it's a moot point. Right. But yeah, that's. I mean, it's, that's why it's least entertaining, yeah. just for a brief second here. Did he have to be God? And based on the reality of the world around us and the reality of sinful man, then the answer to that question is, Yes, yeah, um, but we'll we'll talk about this for a little bit here. Um, I I thought about that question this past week, and I hadn't given that exact question a whole lot of thought, and I was looking through Grudem a little bit, and he had four reasons why he had to be God, so or why he had to be God in order to die for our sins. Okay, so we'll we'll look at those real quick. Uh, the first point, which is uh, simple enough, but really important to say, 
it's clearly taught in Scripture. There's, there are some things in the Bible that are mysterious, true or false. What about the teaching about the deity of Christ? His being deity and his having to be God to, in order to take on his sins, on take, take on our sins. That's quite clear in Scripture, very clear. So we, we could even stop right there and say, okay, let's move on to the next point. But there's some other things we could say to that. Only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who would believe in him. And this is what David was saying. Any finite, I don't think that's a blank, but any finite creature would have been incapable of bearing that penalty. Can anyone turn to the book of Hebrews to prove that point? Either something, either what you know about Hebrews in your head or maybe a verse you'd like to share. Something that proves what, what we just said there, that only someone who's infinite God could bear the full penalty of our sins. And no finite creature could ever bear that penalty. What does the book of Hebrews have to say about that? Over the angels? Yeah. Yeah, maybe you could say uh, he could have sent an angel if he wanted to, but they couldn't bear our sin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're not infinity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a time when they were not. Yeah. Final high priest. Yes. And that's where I'm going with it, too. So I, I think I wrote some references down for you. Um, Hebrews 7, 26 to 28, just to summarize those. Um, it, uh, the author of Hebrews says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy, and here's some key words, he was holy. He was innocent. He was undefiled. He was separated from sinners. And he was exalted above the heavens. Important points to make in this regard, right? Jesus was holy, he was, he was perfect, he was sinless, he was innocent, he was separated from sinners, he was exalted above the heavens. Any finite creatures uh, meet that description? Do we ever meet that description? No. And he doesn't need daily, like earthly high priests, like the other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, right? And then for the sins of the people. So see what the high priests in the Old Testament had to do? They had to offer up sins for them, uh, sacrifices for their own sin. And then they had to offer up sacrifices for the people. So this is the earthly high priest. But he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So it's an important point to say that no finite creature could do this for us. No finite creature could bear the full penalty of our sins. And then later on in chapter 10 it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. And then later on, every, high pr every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, and you hear the mundane nature of that. Time after time, day after day, same sacrifices. And what do those do? They can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one, sacrifices, one sacrifice for sins for all time, then he sat down at the right hand of God. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, and this is why he's able to bear our sin. So this is a clear clear point at this point, isn't it? Any questions on that? 
And then reason number three. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah learned that the hard way. <laughs> where, did, uh, where did Jonah say this statement? Yeah. <laughs> Salvation is from the Lord. Okay, no, it's not through me this time. <laughs> the whole message of Scripture is designed to show that no human being, no creature could ever save man. Only God himself could do that. Salvation is from the Lord. And then reason number four. Only someone who is truly and fully God can be the one mediator between God and man. So say, say we're looking for a mediator to stand between us and God. Who's going to sign up for that? Any of y'all want to sign up for that? Why wouldn't you want to sign up for that? <laughs> Besides, uh, we wouldn't be able to do it. We wouldn't be able to do it. We couldn't appease the wrath of God. We couldn't do it ourselves. We're finite creatures. And he had to be our mediator. He's fully God and he's fully man, so he's the perfect mediator. And he's able to bring us back to God and also to reveal God most fully to us. He's the perfect mediator in that regard. So no mere man could have ever appeased the wrath of God. Only God incarnate could taste death for his people. Lucas? Sure. Say he had a point of pride and said, I'll do it. He would have gotten fired the first day. So <laughs> Did you have something to say, Rob? Okay. Yeah, so did Jesus have to be God to die for our sins? That's the question. Yes, Scripture is clear about it. And then some warnings on the same point. What does 1 John 2.23 say? Someone can read that for us. If you deny the Son, who he is, what he's done, what he came to do, you don't have the Father. That's a warning. And then Second John 9, if you want to read that, we covered that last week, or might cover that last Sunday morning. Yeah, and Mike described that as, you know, like going beyond. He, he described this in what, with what word? People who go too far. Progressive, yeah. Like progressing past the teaching of Christ. I thought that was an interesting way of describing it. So, you, you know, you're going past the teaching of Scripture, who he is, what he's done, the truth of Christ. You don't have God. These are warnings from Scripture. And then Paul ends. Anyone know who Paul ends is? The theology teacher right over there at, uh, at Idlewild. Um, this is what he said. An attack on the deity of Jesus Christ is a, an attack on the bedrock of Christianity. At the heart of orthodox belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for a lost humanity. If Jesus were only a man, he couldn't have died to save the world, but because of his deity, his death had infinite value. And there's another point we can make. He had infinite value because of who he was, what he did, had infinite value, extreme value, way beyond the description, value. 
whereby he could die for the entire world. So only, only God could do that. We couldn't do that. So it might sound like it's a point that goes without saying, but it's in Scripture, and there you go. You have the information now, and people ask you, it's clear. You know, they might philosophize a little bit about it, but it's quite clear from Scripture that he had to be God to die for our sins. Any questions before we move on? Is it making sense? Okay. Scriptural teaching. And again, this is where we'll spend most of our time. Hey, there's your warning. All right. Uh, who did FOF? Let's see. Moltons, Bradbury. And you remember hands. Well, who did FOF with me you know, last year? Then you saw hands, right? And you remember what those are? Yeah. Authority. Well, attributes, yeah. Attributes. Which authorities? Authorities bound up in that one. Uh, Names. Yeah. Deeds. Sovereignty. Yep. Sovereignty is up in the A. Yeah, under the attributes. Yeah. The seat. The seat. Yeah. Um, that's okay. <laughs> hmm. That's true. We have to do a final exam. <laughs> um, this is, for, this is uh, the outline that this book's built on right here, putting Jesus in his place. I stumbled across it. I got my copy in 2008. And you know how when you get books, do you read them right away? Do you ever read them? <laughs> I had mine in 2008, and I finally pulled it out last year. I'm like, wow, this is good. <laughs> really good outline. Because it covers all the points that traditionally systematic theologians make really good points, but the way they summarize them is very helpful. And as you can see, they did this, you know, easily half a year ago, and they still at least had it in their head, okay? They didn't remember all the exact words, but it was a way for them to uh, be able to describe it to somebody. And if you're on the airplane, you want to describe it to somebody, you think, okay, H. Even if you get some of the words wrong, you still will get the ideas. So, hands. I really like it. From Robert Bowman and Ed. Okay, if you have the first name Ed, what do you think the last name is? Kamozuski. <laughs> I'm not sure, to be honest. I think he must have shortened his first name, whatever it was. Ed. <laughs> so, but yeah, we're going to do just the H today, okay? Just the H. And there you go. Look at this. Honors. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> no. <laughs> it does look like a little kid's hand, doesn't it? Honors, attributes. Names, deeds, seat. Now, if you're who's in FOF currently? Bob's teaching it. Okay. Now, and if you were in the past, we did use this outline, but we covered it in one day. Okay. Now we're going to cover it in several weeks. Last time we read, for instance, for this first point, two verses, and then we moved on. It took about 30 seconds. So I'm going to spend the whole hour on this part point. Okay. In the honors of God, because I'm really I'm very excited about some of this material. It's really neat stuff. Really neat stuff right from the Old Testament and New Testament that teaches that Jesus shares the honors with God. Really cool stuff. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's really clear. So today we're on honors, okay? On the thumb. Jesus shares the honors of God. And we'll see that this point is huge, okay? And if you're trying to defend the deity of Christ, trying to describe it to somebody, I've the more I've studied this week... I think you could just, just say this point and prove the whole thing. This is such a huge point, that Jesus does share the honors of God. In other words, 
No one else could share the honors. Only Jesus could do this. And we'll describe that as we go. So there's our watchword. It's an important verse here, John 5.23. Someone read that for us. John 5.23. That's pretty, uh, pretty uh, striking verse. Very clear, isn't it? Does anyone else deserve that kind of description? That'd be blasphemy, outright blasphemy to say that about any man. This is a huge statement here. So again, when we're talking about honor, we're not just talking about, yeah, giving him, yeah, okay, he's a cool guy. He did some neat things. We respect him. This is honoring Christ just like we honor the Father. That's a huge statement. That's way more than the Jehovah's Witnesses would ever uh, want to even imagine, okay? Because they would like to pay him a little bit of respect, but not like this, okay? So, who does the Old Testament say we should worship? God. Yahweh, personal God of Israel, right? Is that clear or unclear in the Old Testament? Quite clear, isn't it? We talked about it this morning, right? Looking at Rob, so I think we talked about it this morning, right? Yeah. Quite clear that worship in the Old Testament belongs exclusively to Yahweh. He makes no bones about this in the Old Testament, all over the place. We're going to read every single verse that talks about it. No, I'm kidding. No, a few verses. <laughs> a few verses. Uh, who? Who? Yep. Who, what, when, where, why, who? Yep. Yeah, so this is extremely clear Old Testament teaching. Um, let's look at some verses. So we're going to read Exodus 20, 3 through 5. Wait, that's a phone. Is that? That's a phone. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, so how much room did he leave for other gods? Sure, no man, no, nothing. Just a little bit of room for worship of something else or someone else. Not a single bit. Quite clear, no other gods before me. No idols, no likeness of what's in heaven or on the earth, beneath, water, under the earth. You better not worship them. You better not serve them. Okay, quite clear. Because I, Yahweh, am your God. I'm your God, no one else. In the first Chronicles twenty nine eleven. Yeah, so would he share any of those titles with anybody else? The victory, the majesty, you think he would be sharing those with anybody else? Nine Psalm ninety seven, verse seven. Yeah, Isaiah 42, verse 8 is the key verse here. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm Yahweh. When you have, uh, I know we've talked about it several times, but when you have Lord and all uh, uppercase letters, big L, big O, big O, or big R, big D, what does that mean? Yahweh, Yahweh the personal God of Israel, his title, okay? It's not just like saying, okay, he's a Lord or he is a master, um, although he is our Lord, he is our master, but this is his personal name, Yahweh. That's my name. I'm not going to give my glory to anyone else. Okay, that's glory. Look at these words. My praise. They're not going to anyone else. I'm not sharing them. It's very clear with his people. Isaiah 50, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 45, 23. I don't want to steal the thunder of the next point, but does that sound familiar at all? What does it sound like? It sounds like Philippians. Okay, so hold that thought. Uh, Isaiah 48, 11. Okay, so that's a sample, right? You guys all laugh when I say we'll read every verse because you know that there's a, a huge list of verses we could read about that subject. Uh, the point here is not to beat a dead horse. The point is to make a quite, a very clear point of, uh, that's leading right into what we're going to say now. Okay? Is any of that ambiguous? Is any of that unclear? Very clear to us. Uh, here's the next thing. Here's some references that we just read. There you go. Too late. But um, Worship in the New Testament is given to Jesus of Nazareth. Worship in the New Testament is given to Jesus of Nazareth, a real person from a real place. And note under this some important issues. Satan, man, and angels as illegitimate objects of worship. And we'll read some verses here. So Satan, man, angels are illegitimate objects of worship. And now we're looking at New Testament teaching where it's very clear, equally clear, that these do not deserve worship. Uh, Matthew 4, 9 through 10. Anyone summarize what happened there? Who's talking to Jesus in this passage? Satan. What did Satan, what's one of the things that Satan wanted Jesus to do? Yeah, bow down and worship. And then how did Jesus respond? Yeah, some of the ideas we just read from the Old Testament. He brought those back up. He said, Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So still talking about someone exclusive, right? So Satan demanded worship. Peter, what did he do with it? He rejected it. What does Acts 10, 25 to 26 say? Yeah, so who, who's Cornelius? 
Um, he was a Gentile, yeah, that's what we'll say for now at that point. Uh, he was a Gentile, and how did Peter start, how did Peter come to meet him? Yeah, he had a vision, and what was his vision? And then what significance did that have? Was it just a neat story? <laughs> you got to have pork, and that's the point. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, window? Yeah. And then even beyond that, what was his mission in this, in this chapter? The Gentiles. The gospel. Yeah. So their first Gentile, some of the first Gentile converts, people coming from the Gentiles, the other nations, to come to know Christ. Yeah, yeah, so there's more at stake than just food. Um, so this is a really big deal. That's the point I'm trying to make, a very big deal. So what does Cornelius do at this point? What did we just read? He tries to worship Peter, yeah. This is a huge deal. He's like, wow, you're bringing these, this great news to us about the gospel, and now he's starting to bow down and worship him. What does Peter do with that? Hey, I'm just a man, okay? So he rejected it. So did Peter understand the Old Testament? Did Peter understand who Christ was? Yeah. So you can see where we're going with this now. Paul rejected it. You can look at uh, um, sorry, Acts 14, 11. Uh, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in, like, in the Lyconian language, um, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they started calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes. So they, they're not going to accept this worship. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We, also, we are also men of the same nature as you. And we preach the gospel so that you should turn from these vain things to, to whom? A living God. We're just men. You worship the living God, and he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So the point is Paul rejected, and Barnabas, along with him, rejected worship. They knew what was happening. You say, well, that's no big deal. But, okay, we have some more. Angels rejected it. Angels rejected worship. Um, there's two occurrences here in Revelation. We'll at least read the first one. Revelation 19, 9 through 10. Ooh, that's a tough one. Who is who is I in this passage? Who is the I? Then I fell at his feet to worship. John. Wow. John, the guy who wrote Revelation. <laughs> He's compelled to worship an angel. Pretty powerful being, right? Even someone like John would be compelled to worship. So the point is, do angels deserve worship? They're pretty high, aren't they? Pretty lofty creatures, but do they deserve any worship? Is God sharing any of their glory? No. And he had the same exact occurrence, or very similar occurrence, in Revelation 22. And we'll move on for the sake of time. So, 
Satan demanded it. Peter rejected it. Paul and Barnabas rejected it. Angels rejected it. John misunderstood it for a time. King Herod, what did he do with it? He embraced it. Yeah, he was loving it. <laughs> and we'll see what happened to him. Look, so I'll read Acts 12, 22 through 23. <laughs> yeah, he um, he was loving it. Same same uh, response that Paul and Barnabas had. Hey, these are the vo- the gods have come down. They're among us now. And here's King Herod giving a speech. Um, who knows of uh, Flavius Josephus? Besides having a cool name, who was he? Yeah, a historian. Yeah, yeah, Jewish historian. What time frame did he live? Yeah, he was way back, right? He's not he's not an 18th century historian. Yeah, he was way back then. So he was around when some of these things were happening. He actually has another account of this same death, of King Herod dying. And he describes what he was wearing and all those kind of things. And it was a glorious setting for King Herod. But he was loving the worship. And what did God do to him? Yeah. <laughs> he struck him down. Because he didn't give glory to whom? To God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was a little bit more gracious with Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't he? Yeah. See, that's not gracious, but yeah. Very interesting stuff. So it's clear that none of these people deserve worship. Not even the angels deserve worship. That brings us to the next point. That Christ is the legitimate. And we'll add... Indisputable. You can't argue with it. Our object of worship in the New Testament. It's clear. He's the legitimate and indisputable indisputable object of worship. Who worshipped him? Who worshipped Christ? And when he was on earth? Mm-hmm. The disciples? Yeah. Who else? The wise men, yeah. People who got healed? Who else? We could say maybe people who will. All right, well, look at the, we, uh, the first three are ones you just said. The first are the Magi, or the Maggie. I'm kidding. <laughs> the Magi, Matthew 2, 11. Uh, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down to the ground, just in basic respect, right? And that's all they did. Uh, they worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the Magi worshipped him. A clear reference to them worshipping Christ, the baby. Individuals healed by Jesus, like what Joy just said. Um, you can look at several references there, but um, the man born blind said, um, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And the question we're asking during these instances, okay, did he reject worship when he was a baby? That's a funny question, but no, we, there's no account of him rejecting worship when he was a baby. What about the individuals who healed them? Was he rejecting their worship? No. What about the disciples? Disciples uh, worshiping him during his ministry. Uh, Matthew 14:33, And those who were in the boat 
worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. And then Jesus said, no, 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 don't worship me, I'm just a man. No, he didn't say that. At the triumphal entry, Luke 19, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of the disciples, so this is probably not just the 12, but probably a whole group of the disciples, people who were following Jesus, at least, at least nominally, you could say. But the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then after the resurrection, someone will read Matthew 28 and verse 9. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and then verse down in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Okay, what about the angel? They rejected worship, but who did they worship? Who were they called to worship? What does Hebrews 1.6 say? You don't have to say it from memory. You can look it up. Yeah, there's a command to the angels to worship Christ. The angels worship Christ. The early church. Um, this is a, another uh, historian, Pliny. To be honest, I can't remember. He might have been second century. So he's way, way back. Um, right after the Bible times, okay? Right after New Testament times. And this is what he said about the early church. I don't take it that he was a believer, but he saw them. He saw early believers and wrote about them. This is a really neat account. Insight into uh, the early church. This is what he said about them. So this would be like an historian coming in our day to one of our home Bible studies and describing what was going on, and then reporting about it. And then someone finds the account 2,000 years later. This is kind of what this is like. Um, they asserted that this was the sum and substance of their fault or their error. So as the Christians received accusations about things, this is what it was. Namely, that they were in the habit of meeting before dawn on a stated day. Well, that's a big accusation, so. And singing alternately a hymn to Christ. As to a God. And again, he's writing as an unbeliever, so he's not viewing this as the deity of Christ. But he still recognizes that the early church worshipped Christ as God. Does that make sense? And that they bound themselves to an oath, not to the commission of any wicked deed, but that they would abstain from theft and robbery and adultery, that they would not break their word, and that they would not withhold a deposit when reclaimed. This is basic Christian character stuff. This done... Uh, it was their practice, so they said to separate and then to meet together again for a meal, which, however, was of an ordinary kind and quite harmless. So a great description of the early church. But the point I wanted to make here was that an, even an outsider could look at the early church and see who they worshipped. So it's quite clear again there in the early church. What about one day? 
Every knee will bow. And here we are arriving back at Philippians, what Wendell and Joy brought up earlier. Everyone's going to do it one day, whether they like it or not. <laughs> Philippians 2, 9 through 11. What does that say, Wendell? Yeah. You don't have to say it from memory. You can look it. Okay. Well, you can if you want. Yeah, so again, does that verse sound familiar? Like something like a lot of already read this morning, this afternoon. What did it sound like? Isaiah, yeah. Isaiah 45, 23, where it said, God, Yahweh said, I've sworn by myself the words gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. What is it? That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So again, this is essentially a quote that Paul is making from Isaiah. So, did God share it in the Old Testament? No. Is he sharing it in the New Testament? No. Because <laughs> Jesus is God. That's the point. So, everyone's going to worship him one day. If you're in heaven, if you're in hell, you're on the earth, you're going to do it whether you like it or not. Some people are going to do it willingly. Some other people are going to do it unwillingly. Everyone. The worship goes to Christ. In Revelation 5, 11 through 14, this is a really... Uh, significant passage then I John I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing things that only belong to Yahweh in the Old Testament are all going to Christ and every created thing, every created thing, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So this is the point of saying that just like we have sung in the past, we sang it a couple weeks ago, all the glory be to Christ. Is that a biblical song to sing? Can we give all the glory to Christ? Again, and in many ways, this is elementary stuff, isn't it? But again, we're spelling it out in detail, showing how clear it is that Christ is God in flesh. Uh, we're not going to read all these. We won't have time. But all the glory does go to Christ. Uh, John 17:5. What was, what was part of Jesus' prayer? In John 17, what was his what was his prayer request? Has anyone ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness or a uh, Mormon about that verse? About that verse in particular? I have not personally, so I was curious what they would say about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's saying, please send me to that verse, and 
Yeah, say say you get to the point where you don't you don't agree <clears throat> with what we're talking about here. You have to make a choice. What are you not going to believe in, the New Testament or the Old Testament? <laughs> Which way are you going to choose? Obviously, it's a silly question. We don't have to choose. But either way, if uh, you disagree, you at least have to say that the New Testament and the Old Testament don't belong in the same volume because it's, it's very clear that they're both standing there in agreement. So. And then... Uh, you have some similar accounts in Hebrews 3, and then Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. And what does it say after that? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the glory right there in that verse, who does that belong to? Or who is that going towards? At least based on the grammar of the sentence. It's going to Christ. And then you have similar things in 1 Peter 4. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory. And again, to Christ belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the same thing in 2 Peter. And then, as you can see, and as you know, the other doxologies. What's a doxology? Praise. praise. A word of praise. What's found up in that word doxology? Is that from Greek or English? Yeah, logos, which means what? A word, yeah. And then, what's the other Greek word in that statement, in that word? Doxa, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Which means what? Praise or glory. So it's like, it's like saying a word of praise or a word of glory. Yeah. So some of those doxologies are directed toward God the Father, and that's clear too. So we're dealing with the Trinity, aren't we? But we'll talk about more of that later. And I'll read this uh, statement. This is from uh, Bowman and Ed. I'll call him Ed. <laughs> These doxologies clearly are not ascribing glory to Jesus Christ. This is an important point. It's not saying that Jesus gets the glory instead of God, or instead of God the Father. 1 Peter 4.11 states that God is to be glorified, what? Through, through Jesus Christ. So that glorifying Christ is done in a way that glorifies God. Nevertheless, both of these passages ascribe glory forever to Jesus Christ in a language that's identical to other biblical words of praise that give uh, eternal glory to God. By constructing such doxologies to God and Christ together, or even to Christ alone, the New Testament writers were exalting Jesus Christ to the very level of God. 
And that's what's clear as you read those verses. Now, are there any questions on that? It's pretty warm in the room. Or was it warm this, room, uh, this, this morning, too? I was. Hmm. So here's some implications. Implication, implications of what we just talked about. People who knew and love God, people who know and love God, they reject worship of themselves, don't they? They don't take it. They might struggle with pride, sure, but people who really know and love God, people who know the truth, they know that the glory and the worship belongs to God alone. Um, next implication is that Jesus never rejected worship, but he rather accepted it. It's an important point to make because of all the people who did reject it, okay? So just tying together all the verses we just read. And this is what we were just talking about a minute ago with Lucas. Um, the worship of Jesus in the New Testament would utterly contradict the Old Testament were he not fully God. Any comment on that point? Again, that's the point of saying that uh, if the New Testament's wrong about this, then it doesn't belong bound in the same copy as the Old Testament. Because those truths are very clear in the Old Testament that worship belongs to God alone. And then you're saying it belongs to Jesus. So you got to do something with that. What did the Jews do? Well, yeah, they killed them, and then they left out the New Testament, <laughs> right? They just have an Old Testament, don't they? Because they do see this as a contradiction. But we take it by what? Faith. Yeah, we take it by faith. We have faith in Christ. So what are, what's some application of all this? What, since Jesus shares the honors of God, how do we respond to all this? What do we, I mean, I wrote some things down, but what would you all say about that? Is this going to change your life? Probably not. Some cool verses, right? Yeah, it makes sense. I see the logic. And then you go home and go to bed. How does it change your life? Or does it? Apparently it doesn't change your life. I would say prayer. We pray to Christ. That's where you say, where is that in the Bible? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. We're calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do, to call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Who did Stephen pray to in the book of Acts when he was being stoned? Who did he ask to receive his spirit? Yeah, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Uh, I think he might, uh, we might owe him a little bit of love and dedication. It's oxymoronic. You have a, you know, a little bit of love, a little bit of dedication. <laughs> that doesn't quite work. Now, what about all this hating the father and mother stuff? Yeah, Rob. Uh-huh. Yeah. Probably not saying it. No, but go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I would say, um, and maybe we'll add prayer into one of these uh, discussions on the Trinity, but I'd say we pray to the Trinity. Um, and it does say that Jesus always lived to do what? To intercede for us. So yeah, that's true. But we do, we do call, on, we call on the Trinity in our prayers. We have, we have Trinitarian prayers based on the scriptures. Any questions on that? Because you can ask Rob. <laughs> But yeah, we are, we, are, <laughs> we are talking about Christ in this particular context. But yeah, but yeah, I think we, we, had, we need to be Trinitarians. <laughs> we say we are, but are we? You know, Do we forget about the Holy Spirit? 
Do we forget about Christ? You know, those questions we could ask. So again, this is how it changes our life. Love and dedication. Yeah, so what about all this hating father and mother stuff? We could basically close on this point. Yeah, that's my question. <laughs> In comparison? Yeah, that's usually how I hear it. What, why does he use the word hate? Yeah, I mean, anyone else want to comment on that? I've never thought about Philippians 3 in that regard, but I think I like that parallel. Yeah. Any comment on that? So does it change our life? That's the question we're getting at. Does this change our life? So can some man come on the scene, be influential, and say, your uh, love for me needs to look like uh, hatred when it comes to your family? You know, you're so dedicated to me. Any man going to motivate you that much? No, I mean, you might get deceived by certain people, different cults, that kind of thing. But he's the God-man. He's God in the flesh. And he can legitimately call us to love him more than anything else. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is how it changes our life. So this love turns into what? The, de- the D word I have here. Well, yeah, doxology and dedication in everyday life. So what does it look like in Matthew 10? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, crosses are execution devices, true or false? Yeah, self-denial. Who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You can listen to any man saying that? No. Christ, Christ's life, incarnation, is life-changing for us. In other words, he owe, we owe him all the honor and praise. He deserves it all. That's the point. So praise. Another thing that can change your life, daily praise. What hymn is that from? It's one of my, one of my favorite hymns. I have a lot of favorite hymns, but crown him with many crowns. This is what we're living for every day in light of the future of what Christ is going to do. Crown him with many crowns. Anyone want to sing it? <laughs> the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns. All music but its own. You ever heard real loud music? That just You couldn't hear anything else, just that, and it drove you crazy. <laughs> the heavenly anthem is going to drown all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing. Of whom? Of him who died for, for me, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. So he owes our pra- he, we owe him our praise, our prayer, our love and dedication. So it is life-changing. 
I'm going to ask more questions next week because you guys didn't do much talking today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You don't use that in daily conversation? <laughs> Hark, what is it I heareth? <laughs> I thought you used that when I work with your friends. <laughs> yeah, Hark, Harold Angel sing. Listen, yeah. No, I'm going to say next week I'm going to ask you more questions because you all didn't do much talking. And I know if you're not talking, that means I'm not asking you many questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> so, in other words, we went deep into this topic, but it's not, when you hear deep, you think, okay, it's going to be unclear or fuzzy, but it's not It's not fuzzy. It's not hard to understand, okay? We are going deeper into the topic, but it's, it's not complicated. It's very straightforward stuff. Um, if you do the reading, hey, someone needs to keep clicking these things through. <laughs> um, if you do the reading, Grudem. Pages uh, 547 through 51. And that'll be for next week. We'll start on his attributes. And that's his section about his uh, about Christ's attributes. We won't talk about everything he mentions, but it'd be a great introduction. Just a few pages. 